The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 2, 12-17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So do we really want to thank God for scriptures like that? Uh, I hated life. Awesome. Uh, welcome to church. You know, somebody who... Uh, somebody who uh, experiences me for good or for ill on a on a daily basis, and 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 time with me asked me uh, if I was depressed these days, uh, and my initial thought is, well, if you've been diving into Ecclesiastes as much as I have, you would probably be re- depressed also. But but yeah, the answer was yeah, I do for a number of reasons. Feel a little bit of depression uh, these days, and don't worry, and you know, you don't need to send flowers or anything like that. Um, but uh, I am kind of in a, in a season right now that, that looks a lot like the weather today. And, um, and it is a season, uh, but uh, for any of you who might relate to that, um, uh, I think passages like the one that was just read to us provide an affirmation. Uh, for the, those of us who do feel gloomy, for those of us who do feel that a lot of life really, if it's sung honestly, is going to be sung in a minor key, and, and like, like jazz, it's, it's not always going to resolve. And so the title that I've given today's sermon is Holy Cynicism. I want to convince you today that those two words can go together. And, and in fact, if we're, if we're living honestly, those two words will go together sometimes, uh, and uh, if you happen to be from a traditional religious background, especially in an environment that um, doesn't necessarily include the experience of daily, su- daily suffering and struggle all your life, you might actually be bothered by Scriptures like this, might perplex you a little bit to hear the Bible itself say, I hate life. Um, sounds morose, doesn't it? Sounds pessimistic, sounds a little bit like ranting. Why so negative? Uh, Shouldn't we all be singing along with the hymn writer Isaac Watts when he said, it was at the cross that by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day? But what what we don't recognize is that those words from Isaac Watts come in the context of a broader hymn that also talk about how he feels like a worm 
and the crimes that he's done and how the sun hides behind the darkness and how he experiences drops of grief and, and a burden that weighs down on his heart. It's in that context that he talks about being happy all the day because of the cross. And so, I think what Isaac Watts is after, in some ways, is, is similarly what Ecclesiastes is after. The cross, the truth and beauty of God are not going to amaze us. They're not going to electrify us. They're not going to move us until we come to honest terms with how jacked up things are. And until things like lament and complaint and groaning, words like these become a regular part of our vocabulary, along with praise the Lord and I'm happy all the day. They have to go together if we're going to be honest. It's, it's hard, isn't it, to really appreciate light until we've been stuck in darkness for a time. And so, what I want to do today is make a case from the Scriptures that part of true godliness is to have an active, open, expressive distaste for the wrongness of things under the sun. I hated life. He's not the only one in the Scripture that says such things. Job cursed the day of his own birth. Elijah felt so alone and lonely and so depressed that he asked the Lord to take his life. Jesus, it says in the Gospels, was at one point overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. And so, I want to interact with this concept or this notion or idea of holy cynicism, of hating life and, and feeling the freedom to say sometimes, I hate life under two questions. Why should we hate life and what's the point of living if we hate life? So, why should we hate life? The text answers the question for us with, with, with a, a very robust vocabulary. We should hate life because life is absurd. It's absurd. Or in the words of the writer, madness, vanity, grievous, striving after the wind. So, Aldous Huxley, who was British, uh, 20th, early 20th century writer, philosopher, satirist, secular humanist, uh, wrote this uh, essay uh, and uh, was submitted to Vanity Fair and published in Vanity Fair in 1928. And here's what Huxley said, God is, but at the same time, God is not. The universe is governed by blind chance and at the same time by a providence with ethical preoccupations. Suffering is gratuitous and pointless, but also valuable and necessary. The universe is an imbecile sadist, but also simultaneously the most benevolent of parents. Everything is rigidly predetermined, but the will is perfectly free. This list of contradictions could be lengthened so as to include all problems that have ever vexed the philosopher and the theologian. And the way that this expresses itself, the things that Huxley is saying here, the paradox of living, is that whether you are wise or foolish, and this is essentially what, what Solomon is after, assuming Solomon wrote this, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, whether you are wise or whether you are foolish, 
you're going to experience the same end. There is no rhyme or reason to what he calls life under the sun. Why? Because life doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and life has an end. It's terminal. We're all terminal. So, first of all, life doesn't work. Uh, or, in other words, you know, what he's saying is that, that, that applying wisdom and, and living right doesn't seem to have a payoff. In verse 14, he writes that the wise see clearly, but fools walk in darkness, but the same event happens to both of them. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then, says the old man toward the end of his life who has applied wisdom for, for much of his life, why then have I been so very wise? What's been the point of trying to live well? And so, let's use our imaginations. I'll give you another moment of silence just to reflect on this question. Think of one reason right now why you should hate life. Just one. Okay, I'm going to give you a few seconds to think of that reason. Okay, so hopefully, in honesty, we've all come up with, with an answer. Here are a few things that came to my mind as I was brainstorming this morning. I've touched on this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, but you can have parents who loved their children all the way throughout their childhood, and then their children grow up to neglect their parents. And then you can have neglectful parents whose children grow up to love them. You see? You can take really, really good care of your body with the right diet and exercise and nutrition and so on, and suddenly die at the age of 52. And you can chain smoke every day for decades and eat bacon every day for decades and live well into your 90s. You can give generously for, to the poor like, like Job did and lose everything like Job did. Lose your job, lose all your money in a market crash. And then you can, on the other hand, exploit the poor and give nothing to anybody and live a completely self-centered existence and get one promotion after the next and become a billionaire before you turn 30. You can volunteer in an AIDS clinic out of compassion for those afflicted with this awful disease and get infected as you help people, and you can be promiscuous for decades with multiple partners being completely careless and never get the disease. You see, you see, sometimes Cinderella just continues to be the girl sweeping dirt for the wicked older woman and the, the wicked stepsisters, and, and, and sometimes it's the wicked stepsisters who get the prince, right? The faithful, loving wife whose husband is cruel and selfish looks next door to the woman who has no love and no respect toward her husband. She's completely cruel to him, and he's patient and kind with her. It all seems so backwards, and, and, and so we ask, what's the point? And 
um, it's not just our lives. It, it's, it's throughout Scripture, this, this holy cynicism, right? You've got Job, again, who's, who's pictured in the book of Job as, as wise, godly, prosperous, generous, kind. He loses everything. He loses ten children. He loses his dignity. He loses his health. He loses his property. He loses his business and livelihood. He loses it all. And his response initially is, you know, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He holds on to wisdom. He holds on to the truth that he can't quite see or perceive and that doesn't necessarily match up with, with what he sees in his experience. Meanwhile, his wife, who's going through all the same things, says, what's the point of this anymore? Why are you still holding on to your integrity? Why are you still holding on to this thing called wisdom? Curse God and die. Forget about it. What's the point? What's the point? While the wisdom of God may be true, it flat out doesn't work. So what's the point? Then you've got Asaph in the 73rd Psalm where he talks about how he envied the arrogant because the arrogant seem to be getting everything they want. While the righteous are suffering, fools are prospering. So it's a psalm of lament about the state of things. Jesus' disciples, this is after you know, Judas betrays Jesus and then Matthias comes in to, to replace Judas, so, so there's still the twelve. They devote their entire lives to, to preaching and living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, faithfully following Jesus. How did that work out for them? Eleven of the twelve were martyred, not in spite of their faith, but because of it. And then what happened to number twelve? Well, that's, that's John, who died while he was in prison on a remote island, not in spite of his faith, but because of his faith. What's the point? And then there's Jesus, the wisest, purest, most generous, kind-hearted human being who ever lived. His family thought he was crazy. The rabbis thought he was a heretic. The Roman state thought he was a troublemaker and executed him for it. And his own disciples, his closest and best friends, deserted him when he needed them the most. What good is it? Biblical wisdom and, and, and common wisdom, it seems to be saying, while it may be true, it doesn't seem to work. There doesn't seem to be any discernible payoff, so what's the point? And add to this, we all die. <laughs> you want to know why I hate life? Because the outcome of every life, good and bad, wise and foolish, virtuous and evil, is that you're six feet in the ground. That's how it ends. We're all dying. Well, every day for each of us is one more day in the past and one more day toward our death. And so, he, he talks about the fools and the wise people, and he says, both experience the same event, and that event is death. He says there's no enduring remembrance of anybody, and everything will have been long forgotten. And so, in 200 years, he seems to be saying, it makes no difference whether you were a king or a slave. It makes no difference what you did, what you accomplished, who you hurt, who you loved. It makes no difference because in 200 years, 
Nobody's going to remember any of it. It's all going to be forgotten. So Alexander the Great uh, was friends with a philosopher named Diogenes. And the story is told of how Alexander the Great and Diogenes are taking a walk in a field, and they, they stop, and, and you know, they, 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 they encounter a, a pile of objects. And Diogenes just starts staring at that pile of objects. It just happens to be a pile of bones. How many times have you been walking through a field and encounter a pile of bones? Well, there, there it was for them. And Alexander says, what are you doing? What, what are you staring at? As you look at this pile of bones, what, what, what are you doing? And Diogenes replied to Alexander the Great, I'm searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. See, the same bitter end is around the corner for every single one of us, whether you're a king or a slave, whether you are wealthy or poor, whether you are Martin Luther King or whether you are George Wallace, whether you are Mother Teresa or Charles Manson, whether you are old or whether you are a child, we all go to the same place. From dust we came and to dust we shall return. And what do we do in a society where thankfully we, we, we have medical technology and research and, and, and capacity and resourcing to be able to extend life in, in a part of the world where, where life expectancy used to be somewhere in the 30s and now it's well up into the 70s and 80s. And, 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 and one of the things that that's enabled us to do is whitewash, at least for a time, the realities about which the Scriptures are point, uh, uh, talking and, and, and to which the Scriptures are pointing us. We whitewash it. You know, one of, one of our favorite uh, Broadway plays when we lived in New York City was The Lion King, and you, you may be familiar with this, this scene where the young lion uh, gets a conscience and starts to feel upset about the fact that his kind, the lions, would eat antelopes, would kill and eat antelopes. And do you remember this? And, you know, the older lion says to the younger lion, it's okay. Lions do eat antelopes, but it's okay because lions die too. And when we die, we fertilize the grass, and then the antelopes eat the grass so that they can live. And so, it becomes this wonderful circle of life that connects all the creatures. This is something you might call unholy spin as opposed to holy cynicism. Dishonest retelling of the story in order to feel better for the moment and delay the inevitable versus staring it straight in the face and calling it what it is and concluding that you hate life. Jazz does not resolve. And that is actually a picture of wisdom in the world in which we live. The philosopher Peter Kreeft says this. He says, to tell people that death is just another stage of growth is like telling a quadriplegic that paralysis is another stage of exercise. It's cruel, it's dishonest, 
And it comes from an unholy spirit, not from a holy one. The truth about death, according to the Bible, is that death is obscene. It's not this wonderful circle of life that we can sing songs about with our children. It is disgusting, as the doctor in my peripheral vision nods viciously after one of his patients lost her life last week. It is obscene, it is disgusting, and it is not part of life. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's the ultimate enemy. John chapter 11, Jesus is standing at the gravesite of one of His friends named Lazarus, and it says that, that He starts by weeping, that's His first response. His second response is to become furious at the reality of death. It's an unwelcome guest in God's created universe. We're stuck between Eden and the new heaven and the new earth, and we have to be able to name things like death as wrong. Remember, part of godliness is to cult cultivate and nurture an active, open, outspoken distaste for the wrongness of things where things are wrong. Can we do that? People who hate life, the holy cynics, as it were, hate life because they hate death. And death is the outcome of every life. And so, what's the point of living? Is there a hopeful, you know, silver lining to all of this? I think it's important, as we wrestle with that question, to recognize that the writer says that he hates life under the sun. He doesn't say he hates all life, and he certainly doesn't say he hates God or, or curse God and die like, like Job's wife once said. In fact, over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, what the writer does is he turns our attention to life beyond the sun. Life under the sun, remember, is life without respect to or regard for God and what God might be up to in the world and the story that God might be writing with the long view in mind. Life under the sun is, is the life that assumes that this material universe is all that there is. And of course, that's incredibly depressing. If this material universe is all that there is, if Carl Sagan in his PBS you know, shorts was right when he said the cosmos is all that's ever been, the cosmos is all that there is, and the cosmos is all that there ever will be, if that is the truth about life, then Job's wife is spot on. What is the point? And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes over 30 times points beyond the sun to God as creator, sustainer, provider, the source of all wisdom, redeemer, judge, giver of gifts, giver of good commands. Hence, everywhere throughout this, you know, depressing letter, hence everywhere of the home that we were made for and the home to which we are destined in Christ. Hatred for life under the sun does for us what Galatians says that the law of God does for us. It shouldn't be a stopping point. What it, what it functions as is a tutor that leads us to Christ, an instructor that leads us to hope, a ray of light that leads us out of the darkness into the fullness of light. You know, like the 
writer of Psalm 23, King David said, the Lord prepares me a feasting table in the presence of, of my enemies. In the midst of the wilderness, there's a feast because the story has not completely unfolded. You know, Nietzsche put it this way. He says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And what the writer here is saying is God is the why, specifically the future that God has already secured in Christ through the resurrection. That is our why. You know, we can only have a positive outlook on the here and now if we understand that the here and now is headed toward a hopeful, life-giving future such that we can even endure death because that future is so certain and so hopeful. So, Tim Keller likes to use this, uh, this illustration often. He says, you know, if you imagine two women who have the same job, and the job is boring, it's monotonous, repetitive, very uncomfortable work conditions, 20 degrees too hot, muggy, no natural light coming through the windows, daily drudgery, 10 hours a day, six days a week, and it's a one-year assignment for both women. Everything is the same, the work conditions, the job description, it's all the same except for one thing. One woman is promised at the beginning of this one-year period, at the end of this, you will be compensated $30,000. The other woman is told at the end of this one-year period, you will be compensated $30 million. It completely changes the present experience to know where the present experience is leading based on the promise that's been made. One of these women will live in a state of chronic depression, most likely, and the other will be whistling all day long as they do the same job. You know, Howard Thurman was an African-American scholar uh, out of Boston University, and he gave this famous lecture uh, on the Negro spirituals in 1947 uh, at Harvard University. And the reason why he wrote this speech was there was a lot of criticism going around about the Negro spirituals. They were too otherworldly. They, they focused so much on heaven, but, but not hardly at all on life in the here and now. They, they were too heavenly-minded, the Negro spirituals were, to be any earthly good. And Howard Thurman's thesis in this speech that he gave at Harvard was this, that if you are part of an oppressed group with zero advantages, then your ability to endure the here and now must be buttressed by a belief in the final judgment that wrongs will be made right, that you will be reunited with your loved ones who've been stripped away from you, and so on, that justice will ultimately prevail and roll down like rivers, as Dr. King quoted so often from the book of Amos. You know, Howard Thurman said this, direct excerpt from his speech, Christian hope taught a people how to ride high in life to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope 
that their environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to life, a terrible right to life, a holy, godly cynicism and negativity. Because the stuff of now does not resemble the stuff of Eden, and it does not resemble the stuff of the new heaven and the new earth, where justice prevails, where all wrongs are made right. You see, none could destroy their hope. This was the thesis for Howard Thurman. None could destroy their hope, the slaves, because their hope rested squarely in the future of God. You don't need to think about the future of God when you're living in comfort and security and safety and advantages all around you, but you need the future of God when life is filled with setback and disadvantage and difficulty. The book of Hebrews was written to an oppressed minority, to a persecuted church in the first century. And listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 where the audience of the letter was encouraged to run the race with endurance, the race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, for the joy endured the cross, despising the shame, having a holy cynicism about the shame associated with the cross, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that Jesus was looking forward to? What was the one thing that belonged to Him rightfully that He still lacked? You and me, those that He came to redeem and to secure. But now He's seated at God's right hand. Ephesians says that we're also in Christ, mysteriously already there with Him, destined to be there with Him for eternity. What exists at the right hand of God? What is the promise for the future? A few things. Number one, no more frustrated wisdom. Number two, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more disorientation, no more wisdom not working. No more terminal existence. And then finally, instead of hating life, you'll be loving life. You will be happy all the day and only happy all the day. I love what Dwight Moody said. During his lifetime, you know, the famous Chicago evangelist, he said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am right now. Is this enough? Perhaps. Perhaps it is for us to simultaneously carry this holy cynicism and as Isaac Watts said, be happy all the day. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to gather around this feasting table, I realize, Lord, that there are many men and women and children who will approach this table hating life under the sun, enduring things, enduring the reality that, that wisdom is not formulaic, that, that 
it doesn't always have a discernible payoff, including the wisdom of surrendering our whole lives to you, which is what brings us to your table. Some are facing death all day long with a diagnosis, with the death of a relationship, the death of a hope, the death of an aspiration, the death of flourishing. Father, I pray that this table would be the same kind of table that David wrote about for all of us as we seek to approach the table honestly, looking things square in the eye as they really are right now with a hope, the hope to which this table points, that at your hand, at your right hand, there will be no more frustrated wisdom, there will be no more death, and we will be loving life. And so, Father, give us a foretaste of that. Even now, as we take the bread and the cup into our bodies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.